0: Fellowship and love. This is setting records straight. I'm Chuck Coughlin, and this is BreadboxMedia.com. Bringing Back Dads, part two. We need to honor our dads. That's what they want is honor even more than love. That's what motivates dads. In part one of Bringing Back Dads, I discussed a study that established that men want to be honored more than love. Women love more than honored. Oh, well, they want both. But we're talking about priorities here. And also in part one I talked about the study that established that if the dad is, if the dad is a regular attendance at church, four-fifths of the children will be, no matter what the mother does. If the mother attends church regularly and the father not at all, it's only one in 50 children that will end up attending church. I discussed all that in bar one. Let's go on talking about the importance of dads the foundational importance of dance. Dance are the essential foundation for Christian society. The ideal family structure is specifically outlined in the words of the marriage ceremony, in the marriage vows. The man swears to love, honor, and cherish the bride. He will give his life to protect his wife and children, if necessary. And the bride in her part, promises to love honor and obey her husband her protector not popular today but through history is shown to be the most resilient and prosperous family structure have you ever been to a wedding where the heavens opened up and a celestial voice declared the couple husband and wife well i would admit that i have not perhaps you have Yet, when Jesus talks about marriage, he describes it as something that God does. I quote Matthew 19:6. What God has joined together, let no man put asunder. God has joined together. The voices heard at a wedding are human voices. But when it is all over, God has spoken and created a new family. Saying I do at a wedding obligates a man and woman to a lifetime of faithfulness as a husband or wife. For the greatest part of all cultures and all of history, a family is a mother, a father, and their children, one or more children. That is what a family is. Those three components make up a family. If there's only a husband and wife, then that's a family. In our society today, the government and the courts have been engaged in changing the definition of words. They've changed the definition of the word marriage to mean romantic sexual associations. Well, this is an entirely new thing. The phenomenon that we are describing as marriage is the creation of a new word that sounds exactly like the old word but means something very different. The great majority, with exceptions, of cultures over time and space, and anthropologists have confirmed this, do subscribe to the traditional definition of marriage. What individuals comprise a family? I hope to illuminate and reveal the real record about what elements comprise the natural family and what components have comprised the family down through history and around the globe in different cultures. There have been many false ideas put forward in the last century about this issue. Based on assumptions that are plainly false, our governments have been redesigning the family. But if the family composed of a bonded mother and father raising children is a natural thing, has been the normal arrangement throughout history, the usual arrangement. In my discussion, I will cite exceptions, but this is an investigation that will attempt to discover the normal, the natural, the mainstream arrangement of the components that comprise a family. The family that has arisen from nature. If we do find that the bonded mother and father with one or more children is the normal and natural arrangement, can we redefine the family without experiencing unintended consequences? In a March 19, 2013 article in Psychology Today, by Barbara Ray. A study is described called the Not Yet Marriage Report concludes that raising a child in a cohabitating relationship is harder on a child than raising him or her in a marriage. Unfortunately, the typical cohabitating couple in the United States doesn't make it past year five for a variety of reasons. Money problems, the stress of raising kids, the relationship begins to fray. A single mother who had a son when she was 18 years old reported to the study. Kids are very hard on any relationship. If you're not with someone willing to make a commitment, then the chances of that relationship being able to withstand the stress is pretty slim. If a guy can just get up and walk away, it would go somewhere without the stress. He probably will. Approximately 32% of single mother families were in poverty in the year 2010. And poverty has a long reach in a child's life. As a comparison, the poverty rate nationally was 15 percent, less than half. The mother might find a new romantic relationship, as human beings are wont to do. She and her new man might move in together, hoping that this time will be different, that this one might last. And it might, but it also might not. Cohabiting relationships in the United States are still a shaky prospect. The United States has the shortest duration rate for cohabitation of any Western country. This can leave a lasting impact on children. They have more behavioral problems, more cognitive problems than those in married couple families. In an effort to look at this issue with skepticism and cool rationality, we can do no better than turn to Christopher Dawson, the Oxford Don, Catholic, and famous historian Christopher Dawson's books of history were commonly found in American households up to about 1945 or 1950. His ideas are still relevant. From Christianity and Sex, which he wrote, and was reprinted in Dynamics of World History in 1958. Dawson wrote, the traditional view of the family was founded on a somewhat naive and one-sided conception of history. The knowledge of the past was confined to the history of classical civilization and to that of the Jews, in both of which the patriarchal family reigned supreme. But when the European horizon was widened by the geographical discoveries of modern times, men suddenly realized the existence of societies whose social organization was utterly different to anything they had imagined. The discovery of totemism, exogamy, of matrilineal institutions, of polyandry, and of customs of organized sexual activity, gave rise to a whole host of new theories concerning the origins of marriage in the family. I want to note that when I say matrilineal organizations and societies, I'm referring to those societies in which inheritance is traced through the mother, not the father. Dawson writes that, under the influence of the prevalent evolutionary philosophy scholars like Lewis Morgan, elaborated a theory of the gradual evolution of the family from a condition of primitive sexual promiscuity through various forms of group marriage and temporary pairing up to the higher forms of patriarchal and monogamous marriage as they exist in developed civilization. This theory naturally commended itself to socialists. In the later 19th century, it received the official imprimatur of the German fascist socialist movement and has become as much a part of orthodox socialist thought as the Marxian interpretation of history. It is very important to point out that these theories were never accepted by the mainstream scientific world and are today generally abandoned, although one can always find an outlier anthropologist that would like to revivify these ideas. I've been describing dramatic changes in the American family which slowly began to take effect starting in 1960, and the influences which contributed to it. In 1963, the crime rate had been low for many years. In large swaths of America, doors were routinely left unlocked. Children were allowed to move around the cities and towns unsupervised. Except in the toughest neighborhoods of the largest cities, it seldom occurred to someone walking about to worry about muggers. I would like to interject into Murray's observations to offer some of my personal observations about being a child and a young man in the 50s and 60s. The general moral behavior of society was on a considerably higher level than it is today. In the late 50s and early 60s, in Lexington, Kentucky, which is a fairly large town, a child could move about the entire city with impunity. Or as I did in a large Philadelphia suburb, disappeared at dawn on his bicycle, going off to explore and not returning till after dusk. And no one ever worried because your children were safe. Had one instance occurred, the unsupervised play of children about town would have ceased. It was that different and that much better. We could acknowledge the discrimination that did occur in the fifties, acknowledge all the fifties faults, Still, on balance, it was a magnificent error. Let us return to Charles Murray's finding. He's going to make an observation about crime and the rates of crime, which has been shown to have an obvious empirical connection to the dissolution of families the single motherhood. He goes on to say that the nation's prisons held only a fraction of the inmates they would hold by 2010. But clearance rates for crimes and the probability of prison times, if convicted for a felony, were both high. And so we have this paradox compared to later year. Crime was low. Few people had ever been in prison, even in low-income neighborhoods. But most of the people in those neighborhoods who regularly committed crimes ended up in jail. People weren't being naive to believe that crime didn't pay. By and large, it really didn't. The empirical record on the remarkable changes in sexual behavior from 1963 to today documents the overall benefits of marriage and monogamy, beginning with the married partners themselves. As numerous social scientists have shown, for example, monogamous married people score better on all kinds of measures of well-being. A wealth of other data testifies to the proposition that families headed by a married couple, including disadvantaged families, are better off than those headed by a cohabitating couple. Then there is the small library now known under the rubric of, quote, happiness studies. Women whose husbands are the breadwinners tend to be happier than other women. Men who are married earn more and work harder than men who are single. Conversely, promiscuity among teenagers and young adults appears closely related to educational failure and other problems such as alcohol or drug abuse. Numerous authors have also shown that widespread divorce and unwed motherhood, two more offspring of this sexual revolution, are not only detrimental for many individuals, but are also costly for society. Sarah McLaughlin is another researcher who has painstakingly added to the store of knowledge about the downside of the sexual revolution. Her seminal 1994 book, Growing Up With a Single Parent, features, on its first page, one of the most succinct indictments of the sexual revolution yet written. Quote, We have been studying this question for 10 years, and in our opinion, the evidence is quite clear. Children who grow up with only one biological parent are worse off, on average, than children who grew up in a household with both of their biological parents. Regardless of the parent's race or educational background, regardless of whether the parents are married when the children are born, and regardless of whether the resident parent remarries. In the years since, those words and formulations like them have been fighting words among sociologists, with the majority lining up sometimes ferociously opposite McClanahan and like-minded thinkers. It's not that these scholars are unaware of the evidence, It's rather that they feel forced to explain it away. Such is the deep desire to disbelieve that shapes and misshapes so much of what we read about sexual behavior today. This kind of empirical evidence abounds for those who need it, for those who do not mere testimony of those afflicted might do. Contemporary rock and rap, for instance, are driven in significant measure by the fallout from the sexual revolution and the breakup of the family. Their predominant themes include broken homes, broken families, moms, abusive boyfriends, sexual predators, and the rest of the revolution's effect. The sexual revolution has been a disaster for many women. Yet, like hostages in the grip of Stockholm Syndrome, feminists cling to the defense of the sexual revolution. How many feminist-minded students who demonstrate for abortion rights Realize that in many parts of the world, including the United States, girls are more likely to be aborted than boys. So many people today imagine themselves exercising a whole new model by cohabitating, by an unmarried man and an unmarried woman living together. There's nothing particularly modern or experimental about this or progressive. It's an ancient practice. Its effects are well known when you read history. When it is widespread in a civilization, that civilization withers and dies. Civilizations are built on the family, upon marriages. Cohabitating is one of the principal causes, according to many historians, of the decline of the Greek city-states, of the dissolution of the Roman Empire, the abandonment of the traditional family. As Malcolm Muggridge once observed, people do not believe lies because they have to, but because they want to. Is all this inevitable? well, for one thing, understand something that may be counterintuitive. We moderns do not really live in an age of nihilism. It is often said that we do, and people in despair over what the sexual revolution and other modern changes have wrought often believe it. But contrary to such pessimists, we are not predestined by postmodernism to a nihilistic swamp any more than intellectuals of yesterday were predestined by Marx to a dystopian collectivist future, though many people believe that too. In fact, people do believe in all kinds of moral codes, even if they go by other names. No matter what the reasons for the will to disbelieve may be, it is wrong to simply wash our hands of the matter and allow those in possession of bad ideas to claim a monopoly on truth. Disbelief in empirical evidence is dysfunctional. It does not correspond to the demonstrable patterns of contemporary history, and it is not profitable to our lives. Mary Eberstadt has observed in her book Adam and Eve After the Pill, the idea that the sexual revolution is simply an irreversible juggernaut, never to be halted or reversed, is wrong. That is why it's so important to get the facts right, because they're on our side. But how did we acquire these glamorous and fraudulent ideas to which our populace has such affection that they refuse to abandon them despite mountains of empirical evidence that they're destructive? These ideas come from many sources, actually. I can only cite a few Alfred Kinsey's fraudulent studies about sexual behavior in the 50s and 60s. Perhaps I should just cite one very important book which had a huge impact. Coming of Age in Samoa, it was entitled, by Margaret Mead. Now, Margaret Mead, throughout her life, was the undisputed matron of American anthropology. On the basis of this one piece of work, Mead spent her life on the crest of fame, and certainly fortune. Commenting on this book, Coming of Age in Samoa, Dr. Martin Orams, Emeritus Professor of Anthropology at the University of California, opens his book, Not Even Wrong?, of 1983 in this way. Occasionally, a message carried by the media finds an audience so eager to receive it that it is willing to suspend all critical judgment and adopt the message as its own. So it was with Margaret Mead's celebrated coming of age in Samoa. Mead's failures were partly those of cultural anthropology then and now. She did not make her claims clear enough to be tested, and she did not present data to support her generalizations. Had she met these requirements of ordinary scientific practice, she could not have written the rather misleading account that she did. Now in this book, Coming of Age in Samoa, Mead refers to premarital sex as, quote, the pastime par excellence for Samoan youth. She writes that Samoa was a virtual paradise of free love, as young people from approximately 14 years of age until they are married have nothing on their minds but promiscuous sex. Margaret Mead spent three weeks in Samoa and she interviewed only women and only a group of young women who later reported to anthropologist Derek Friedman that since this young lady was anxious for lurid stories about their sexual lives, they invented them. Freeman spent years studying these people and found that Samoan society had very tight sexual taboos, that promiscuous sex and birth of illegitimate children was considered shameful. But the influence of her book was enormous. Everyone assumed that this was the natural state, almost like Jean-Jacques Rousseau's noble savage, that somehow our modern culture had removed us from a promiscuous sexual paradise. Margaret Mead was either lying herself, or she believed the lies of these young women, who later reported that they had deceived her. As a young anthropology major in the 50s, I remember well how seriously her findings were taken and what great honors and publicity was bestowed upon her. It had an effect. At this point, it might be valuable to turn to authoritative accounts of the descriptions of the history of marriage over the centuries and in all human societies. A great deal of work has been done on this by many scholars. One of the most renowned is Christopher Dawson, the Catholic Oxford professor, whose works were so widely read before 1950. Is the family an artificial creation or the natural structure as the building block of society? Whether it's an instinctive natural phenomenon or applied as a result of economic forces such as suggested in various Marxist theories that had a great prominence in the 20th century. In general, these theories have been abandoned by scholars in this area. The academics in this period were trying to define the family, as we understand it, and the foundations of it, as owing nothing to biological or sexual causes, but being an economic institution arising from the development of private property and the consequent domination of women by men. They said it was but a euphemism for the individualistic male with his subordinate dependence. Responding to this viewpoint, Dawson goes on to write, But in spite of its logical coherence and the undoubted existence of matrilineal institutions in primitive societies, this theory has not been borne out by recent investigation. The whole tendency of modern anthropology regarding primitive promiscuity and sexual communism and to emphasize the importance and universality of marriage, whether the social organization is matrilineal or patrilineal, Whether morality is strict or loose, it is the universal rule of every known society that a woman before she bears a child must be married to an individual male partner. The importance of this rule has been clearly shown by Malinowski, who wrote, the universal postulate of legitimacy has a great sociological significance, which is not yet sufficiently acknowledged. It means that in all human societies, moral tradition and law decree that the group consisting of a woman and her offspring is not a socially complete unit. I repeat, the group consisting of a woman and her offspring is not a sociologically complete unit. The ruling of culture runs here again on entirely the same lines as natural endowment. It declares that the human family must consist of the male as well as the female. It is impossible to go back in examining the evidence we have from prehistory and find a state in which the sexual relations are in a pre-social stage, for the regulation of sexual relations is an essential prerequisite of any kind of culture. The family is not a product of culture. It is, as Malinowski shows, the starting point of all human organization, unquote, and the cradle of nation culture, unquote. Neither the sexual nor the parental instinct is distinctively human. They exist equally among the animals and they only acquire cultural significance when the purely biological function is transcended by the attainment of a permanent social relation. Marriage is the social consecration of the theological function. In marriage, the instinctive activities of sex and parenthood are socialized and a new synthesis of cultural and natural elements is created in the shape of the family. So we begin to see that what Christopher Dawson has established by his extensive review into history and the findings of anthropology was that the complete freedom from sexual restraint, which was formerly supposed to be characteristics of the savage's life, is a romantic myth. In all primitive societies, such relations are regulated by a complex and meticulous system of restrictions, any breach of which is regarded not merely as an offense against tribal law, but as morally sinful. These rules mostly have their origin in the fear of incest, which is the fundamental crime against the family, since it leads to the disorganization of family sentiment and the destruction of family authority. The institution of the family inevitably involves a vital tension. It is creative as well as painful. For human culture is not instinctive. Christopher Dawson writes that it has to be conquered by a continuous moral effort. It involves the repression of natural instinct and the subordination and sacrifice of the individual impulse to the social purpose. It is the fundamental error of the modern hedonists to believe that man can abandon moral effort and throw off every repression and spiritual discipline and yet preserve all the achievements of the comfortable culture that sustains us all. Dawson writes that it is a basic lesson of history that the higher the achievement of a culture, the greater the moral effort and the stricter is the social discipline that it demands. The older type of matrilineal society, though it is by no means devoid of moral discipline, involves considerably less repression and is consistent with a much laxer standard of sexual behavior than is usual in patrilineal societies. The patrilineal family, on the other hand, makes much greater demands on human nature. It requires chastity and self-sacrifice on the part of the wife, and obedience and discipline on the part of the children, while the father himself has to assume a heavy burden of responsibility and suppress his personal feelings in the interest of the family tradition. The children and the wife are bound to the husband. And in older patriarchal societies, often the husband was free to wander and have mistresses. But with the advent of the Christian marriage, the husband vowed to belong to the wife. And what was distinctive about the Christian marriage and the catholic marriage was this tremendous sacrifice on the part of the male was that his wife would be his exclusive sexual partner she belonged to him and he belonged to her for these very reasons the patrilineal family is a much more efficient organ of cultural life it is no longer limited to its primary sexual and reproductive functions it becomes the dynamic principle of society and the source of social continuity. Hence too, it it requires a distinctively religious character which was absent in matrilineal societies and which is now expressed in the worship of the family hearth or the sacred fire and the ceremonies of the ancestral cult. The fundamental idea in marriage is no longer the satisfaction of the sexual appetite, but as Plato says, quote, the need that every man feels of clinging to the eternal life of nature by leaving behind him children's children who may minister to the gods in his stead. The exaltation of the family profoundly affects men's attitude to marriage and the sexual aspects of life in general. It is not limited to the idealization of the possessive male as father and head of a household. It equally transforms the conception of womanhood. It was the patriarchal family they created those spiritual ideas of motherhood and virginity that have had so much influence on the moral development of culture. No doubt the deification of womanhood through the worship of the mother goddess had its origin in the ancient matrilineal societies, but the primitive mother goddess is a barbaric and formidable deity who embodies the ruthless fecundity of nature and his rites are usually marked by licentiousness and cruelty. It was the patriarchal culture which transformed this sinister goddess into the gracious figures of Demeter and Persephone and Aphrodite, and which created those higher types of divine virginity that we see in Athena, the giver of good counsel, and Artemis, the guardian of youth. As a matter of fact, the patriarchal society was in fact the creator of those moral ideas, which have entered so deeply into the texture of civilization that they have become a part of our thoughts. Not only the names of piety and chastity, honor and modesty, but the values for which they stand are derived from this source, so that even where the patriarchal family has passed away, we are still dependent on the moral traditions that were created in this way. Consequently, we find that the existing world civilizations from Europe to China are all founded on the tradition of the patriarchal family. It is to this that they owe the social strength that enabled them to prevail over the old cultures of matrilineal type, which alike, in Europe, in Western Asia, in China, and in India, had preceded the coming of the great classical cultures. Moreover, the stability of the latter has proved to be closely dependent on the preservation of the patriarchal ideal, A civilization like that of China, in which the patriarchal family remained the cornerstone of society and the foundation of religion and ethics, was able to preserve its cultural traditions for more than 2,000 years without losing its vitality. In the classical cultures of the Mediterranean world, however, this was not the case. Here the patriarchal family failed to adjust itself to the urban conditions of the Hellenistic civilization. And consequently, the whole culture lost its stability. Conditions of life both in the Greek city-state and the Roman Empire favored the man without a family who could devote his whole energies to the duties and pleasures of public life. Late marriages and small families became the rule. And men satisfied their sexual instincts by homosexuality or by relations with slaves and prostitutes. This aversion to marriage and the deliberate restriction of the family by the practice of infanticide and abortion was undoubtedly the main cause of the decline of ancient Greece. As the historian Polybius pointed out in the 2nd century BC, and the same factors were equally powerful in the society of the empire, where the citizen class, even in the provinces, was extraordinarily sterile. Thus the ancient world lost its roots alike in the family and in the land and became prematurely withered. This is an almost inexhaustible subject and I've probably exhausted you. There's much more to say at some other time. It's the Christian marriage that has provided the, the firmest foundation, the firmest building block for the most successful societies and most humane societies. In history. This is Chuck Often on BreadboxMedia.com. Trying a little bit to set the record straight. This is international Catholic singer Anna Nuzo inviting you to join me and Father Dan Cambra of the Marian Fathers on a select international tours, divine mercy pilgrimage to Poland and the Czech Republic. It takes place in September of 2019, and we would love for you to join us. For more information, go to my website, AnnaNuzo.com. Thank you and God bless. Breadbox Media Programming is brought to you by Jack Kane Ford. Find your next Ford Tough vehicle at KaneFord.com.